when we're looking at health issues, particularly complex health issues, we can't just look within health because really these problems are multidimensional. They're caused by a combination of factors that are, yes, they're related to health. Health is always important, but they're also related to other things. The, the connections that families have with their communities, the access to services, the way that we design our services and design our environments and so many other factors that actually influence well-being. Welcome back to Talking Health, a podcast where we explore the big health issues facing our communities. On this podcast, you'll hear from some of the world's leading health researchers, communities, organisations and people with lived experience about the advancements we're making in health to transform the well-being of our communities at each stage of life. I'm Professor Deborah Anderson, the Dean of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the founder and director of the Women's Wellness Research Collaborative. I've spent my career dedicated to supporting people, and particularly women after cancer, to implement sustainable lifestyle changes to get the most out of life. Today on the podcast, I am thrilled to welcome the inaugural director of the UTS Research Institute for Innovative Solutions for Wellbeing and Health, Professor Susan Morton. Susan is an internationally recognized life course health researcher and public health clinician and has more than a decade of experience establishing and successfully leading a cross-faculty health research center at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Welcome, Susan. It is so good to have you on the podcast today. Lovely to be here. Susan, you've spent almost two decades undertaking health and wellbeing research. Can you give our listeners a little bit more insight into your career journey to date? I guess I've had an atypical academic career, really. I started my life as a mathematician, did a pure maths degree and was a, was a secondary school teacher before I had my first two children. And it was during that time when we were doing parent centre activities and Plunkett, which is kind of a well-child check, that I became involved in community politics, really, around the sort of provision of services for mums and for children. And I really recognised that actually if I wanted to make a difference in that space, because I was pretty passionate about it, I really needed to be a health professional myself rather than just someone in the community. And so I kind of rekindled the idea that perhaps I should go to medical school. So I I did that with my two children, um, eventually had a third one. Luckily, my husband was incredibly supportive of my craziness. From that point, I uh, went into paediatrics because I, I saw that as a way to make change, to make a difference to children's lives and to improve well-being. But basically trying to do that work and look after my own three children, I realised that I was looking after everybody else's children, I guess, and really wasn't getting a chance to look after my own. And being mum was still pretty important to me. So in another crazy move, it was suggested that maybe I should do a PhD because a PhD would give me time with my children. So I got a Commonwealth scholarship, um, took off, we all took off for London, and I undertook a PhD over there at the London School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine. And, and I guess that was the place where I really started to think about population well-being and public health. I got involved in longitudinal studies, which of course have been running for five, six, even seven decades in the UK. And I myself got to work on a uh, longitudinal study that had been running since the 1950s in Scotland. And I really began to realize how important just following everyday lives was in terms of understanding 
what shape well-being and I really got the bug I suppose for for population health and I transitioned after my PhD into population health and that's where I did my advanced training and, and now I'm a public health physician. I came back from London 2003 or we all did well some of us dropped children off along the way because they were nearly adults at that stage and they were off to college but I came back and as you say I've been there I was there for two decades and really was lucky enough to come back at a time where a longitudinal study was starting in New Zealand and just serendipitously, I guess, I, I brought back that experience and I, I guess I um, I got involved in running it and, and basically ran it for 20 years. And, and that's been amazing. And in some strange way, that's brought my strange career together, the sort of coming together of maths and medicine and population health and, and just basically ended up being a, a career that I hadn't planned but actually in some ways has really fulfilled those, those passions for wanting to help people, wanting to make a difference. Before we move on and talk about the Longitudinal Study and Advisory Board, can you just explain to our listeners the difference between longitudinal studies and normal types of studies that happen just in one point of time? So basically a longitudinal study takes a group of people it follows them across time. So, for example, in the longitudinal study that, that I've been involved in, we've followed nearly 7,000 children in the context of their families from, from before their birth in this case, and then we've followed them up and they're now teenagers. So it's basically the difference is that you keep engaging with the same people and you're really learning about their development and their their journeys through through their lives rather than just potentially seeing them at one point in time. You are currently the chair of the International Advisory Board for the development phase of the new early life birth cohort in the UK and an international scientific advisor for several ongoing UK longitudinal studies. Can you tell us a little bit more about this work and your work in New Zealand? Perhaps we start with the New Zealand work. In some ways, I guess the reason that I got involved in the work in New Zealand was because of the UK longitudinal studies. And I started my, my love affair, I suppose, with longitudinal studies while I was doing my PhD in London. And then I came back and, and as I said, I had this opportunity to start the longitudinal study in New Zealand. So so that longitudinal study is now following these 7,000 children in the context of their families, very much focused on what shapes their well-being. It's had an explicit aim from the beginning to inform policy, policy that can improve their lives, give them a better chance for their futures and actually have, a, have an effect that we hope will be not only for those children, but actually for generations to come. And that sort of work in New Zealand, I suppose, has produced a number of publications now and a number of outputs that have started to change policy in New Zealand itself. But as well as that, we've also worked globally. So the connections that I guess I was lucky enough to make when I was working in London have allowed me to work with people doing longitudinal studies around the world. And that's been fantastic because we've been able to compare the journeys of our children and their families across these different contexts, the different social and political contexts and, and understand actually what's shaping development in the context of these different population settings. And so I've, I guess I've kept my connections with those people around the world and, and that also led to a connection to the Society for Life Course and Longitudinal Research, which I'm lucky enough to be the president of now. 
And I guess with those sort of connections, I've always been involved in sort of committees that have been looking at how do you set up a new study? How do you learn from what we're doing? How do we how do we make these longitudinal studies better? And how do we actually make sure that we're really doing what we set out to do, which is to find evidence that can make a difference? And so I guess that sort of two decades of experience, those connections now mean that I, I find myself as sitting on advisory committees for new studies and, as you say, uh, being the chair of the cohort advisory group for the new longitudinal study in the UK. And that's really exciting because the UK uh, is really the home of longitudinal studies and it's just a privilege to be part of that group and to be working with a, a group of global experts, really, to, to make sure that the new study that hopefully will begin in the UK in a couple of years' time will actually learn from all of the things that we've been doing around the world and, and hopefully we'll, we'll provide evidence that we can use around the world as well. Yeah, thanks, Susan. And longitudinal studies can just give us such powerful data and knowledge to be able to move forward in, in health and well-being. Being able to listen to and understand people's different life experiences to help inform and influence change is really a huge privilege and responsibility. How has some of the work you've been involved in made a difference to like real families and real communities? Yeah, look, it is, it's a real privilege to be able to follow these ordinary lives and to get this extraordinary evidence out of it. And our responsibility, I think, as researchers is to make sure that we take that collection of information and use it to actually do what these families want us to do when they when they came into the study, which is to make a difference to, to well-being. So I think there are a number of ways that we probably started to do that, particularly in the New Zealand context. We've, firstly, we just hear the voices of those families and their children who are least often heard at the policy table. And we can take those unheard voices, the missing pieces of information to policymakers so that they can actually understand what's going on for some of those families and children that they find it really hard to reach with their health policies and with their strategies that are pretty much designed to reach the most vulnerable, but actually in reality, often miss them out. And so the sort of why these things are either reaching those families or what the barriers or enablers are, have been some of the discussions that we've, we've been able to take to the policy table. And if we think about a specific example of that and think about childhood immunisation, we know that in New Zealand, for example, as well as around the world, that those children who are living in the greatest poverty, those who maybe are, you know, in New Zealand, Māori or Pacific, are least likely to have their immunisations completed and least likely to have them on time. And the common sort of response to that from a policy respect is that often there'll be just more information provided to those families, like they don't know that, that the utility or the benefit of these programmes but actually, when we look at what those families told us in the study, they know very well their intention is to fully immunise their children on time. It's actually access and barriers to getting to those immunisation programmes and getting to healthcare settings that stops them from achieving that and their complex lives, which make it difficult for some families to do some of the things that they actually really want to do. So it led to a different approach from our policymakers to set up some immunisation programmes and some other child wellbeing programmes actually in those communities and to go to the families rather than expecting the families to go to them. 
So that's kind of one example. I guess another one is, is thinking really outside of health, because when we think about health and well-being, not all of the solutions to actually improve well-being will sit within health. So one of the things that we've done a lot of work on is looking at housing and how warm the houses are and how safe the houses are for the children, particularly in the early years. And the evidence that we've been able to provide from those families shows that for 40% of our families who are living in rental accommodation, they're often living in very cold environments and they're living in environments that they have little control over. And those environments are also the least safe in terms of fenced driveways, in terms of working smoke alarms and just the sorts of things that you take for granted in terms of looking after your children. And so that sort of information that we've provided to policymakers again fed into the warrant of fitness now that exists for landlords who now have to provide warmth or processes mm -hmm. to ensure that the rental properties are warm. And they have to actually think about the sort of safety of the environment. And that before that was entirely about the renters needing to needing to do that themselves. And of course, when it's not their property, they had no real impetus to do that. These are great examples, Susan, and thank you for sharing them. You know, it really helps us understand how your research can really highlight the voice and lens of the people and really change policy and practice in, in such a positive way. You officially joined UTS earlier this year as the director of our newly formed Research Institute for Innovative Solutions for Wellbeing and Health, nicknamed INSIGHT. Insight has been a vision of mine for many years and UTS has really enabled me to bring that vision to life and create a convening space for researchers from across the university to really come together to address some of these big health issues which are facing our communities. It was a bold vision, but now you're helping to make that happen. And you've spent the past 10 years establishing and successfully leading a cross-faculty health research institute at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. What are some of the insights you've gained from this experience that have helped shape how you will approach the establishment of insight here at UTS? Yeah, thanks, Deb. It's a big privilege and I'm really, really excited about this opportunity. And, and you know, that's why I've crossed the ditch and come across in, in order to, to hopefully bring those learnings from the last couple of decades and, and work with some amazing people at UTS to bring this vision to life. And I think probably it starts with an idea that when we're looking at health issues, particularly complex health issues, we can't just look within health because really these problems are multidimensional. They're caused by a combination of factors that are, yes, they're related to health. Health is always important, but they're also related to other things, the, the connections that families have with their communities, the access to services, the way that we design our services and design our environments and so many other factors that actually influence well-being. And so if we're going to tackle these really big problems, these complex, wicked issues in health that despite our best efforts really for decades, we've, we've had very little impact on, then we really need to be doing it in a way that brings disciplines together, that combines expertise and, and multiple lenses on a problem. And it does it in a way that is mutually respectful. So I think the key to, to undertaking research like this is really to 
build relationships across traditional silos. So to break down the sort of ways that we quite often work in research, which is very much discipline-based. And we might go and work with a partner who sits outside health if we sit inside health ourselves, but really do we actually bring multiple experts to the table? And really do we do it in a way where all of their views are respected and taken on board and actually become part of the project? And I think that sort of idea of co-design and partnership to come together to solve some of these problems is hopefully going to give us a way to look at some of these problems differently. And alongside that, I think importantly in Insight, we really want to be partnering with the stakeholders who are, who are impacted by these issues that are going on. So that may be populations, it may be communities, or it might be the health providers, or it might be those working in the social sector, or those working in business, or in education. And we want to bring them to the table as well so that actually we can sit down and solve these problems together. And really, by doing that, hopefully start to break down some of these real problems that have become entrenched in our health statistics and break down particularly some of the inequalities that we see existing between population groups. So listening to voices, bringing those to the table and really working together to do things differently and, and I guess that's why I came to UTS, really, because I see the opportunity to do things differently at UTS, to actually not just talk about doing this, but really be able to do it. And Insight gives us that platform, and it's really, it's really exciting, and it's, it's really challenging, but it's actually, I hope, going to make a difference. Well, we're so glad that you came across the ditch, Susan, to, uh, to, to help create and, and help us uh, enact this vision, which I'm sure you're going to do in a, in a terrific way. As you touched on, we're bringing together researchers from across the university to work together to solve wicked health problems. This is not an easy feat, is it? And from your experience, what's going to be the key to making this work well? Yeah, it's not because it's not the way that we've traditionally operated and, and it's not the way that a university or even other institutions traditionally values how people work. It's, it's much more discipline specific. And so we are really going to have to think outside the box. We're going to have to do things differently. And as well as building these relationships of mutual respect and trust, we also need to create an infrastructure that is going to support this sort of activity that is that is different from the norm. But the reality is if we don't do that and we just keep doing what we're doing, then we're not going to make change. So, so basically, it is challenging, but I think UTS through Insight is giving us the opportunity to do this, um, and that's fantastic. I think we, we will learn as we go. It's not all going to be straightforward. But I think mostly it's about giving a chance for people to come together in ways that they would otherwise not be able to. And inside itself is wanting to create that space, that enabling space to bring people together who would often not have the opportunity to, to hear each other's views, to, to think about problems, looking at it from different angles. And so that's what we're really hoping to do alongside bringing stakeholders to the table. And I think that for the last decade or so, has been a process that, is, that has shown that we can make change that way in New Zealand. I mean, we've worked with 16 government agencies there for the last 15 years, in fact, 
and, and we bring them along with us. We bring them on the journey. So it's a process that, that co-designs the research throughout the whole pipeline. So we really are doing this in partnership. It's, it's different from the research where, where you, you make a discovery, you maybe do some amazing research and you take that discovery then and try and sort of take it out to, to those people you, you think may find it useful. Sometimes that doesn't work. And so what we're trying to do here is to, to actually bring those people that we think will use this or need the research findings along with us on the journey, a little bit like a longitudinal study in some ways, bringing them with us on the journey and taking them along the way and learning from them as we go, as well as learning from what we're doing as researchers. Well, that sounds exciting, Susan. And I, I can see we've already seen the establishment of four collaboratives and one hub as the first phase of Insight. What's next on the horizon for Insight? Yeah, so the, the collaboratives are, are the beginning of bringing people together from across disciplines and and really starting to create those relationships which are at the heart of, of doing good research like this and doing transdisciplinary research and research that has impact. So I think that's that's been a really solid beginning to, to insight. And I guess the, the plan now is to use those relationships, to use the sort of ways in which people are thinking differently, hopefully, by coming together and turning those into research projects, research ideas and big ideas. So starting to actually address some of these wicked health problems that we see in our community, things that have been difficult to make change to for, for decades. And so we're looking to the collaboratives now in the next six months to a year to come up with some of these ways in which we can work differently to solve some of these entrenched issues. And that will be the process of setting up insight, we hope, to then start to really sort of grow its credibility and its processes to allow us to, to have this group of people who are doing things that are, that are challenging the norms, that are outside the, the traditional way of working, and, and to hopefully get some research funding, of course, to ensure that we can sustain the work that we've begun, that, is, that it's in its infancy at the moment in terms of insight. Susan, thank you so much for being my guest on Talking Health today and for giving us an insight into your extensive career to date and your vision for our new Health Research Institute. There's certainly a lot to look forward to. Well, look, thank you so much for giving me the chance to, uh, to share some of my atypical story and also for the opportunity to come and to lead this new institute, which is just so exciting and, and the challenges is ahead of us. But I'm, I'm really excited about the people that I've met so far, about the opportunities, and um, I really hope that we can live the, the vision of making a difference to everyday lives and, and changing well-being for, for those people who've been left out and who are most vulnerable and, and who we can bring those voices uh, to the table and, and improve well-being for everybody. Today, I've been speaking with Professor Susan Morton, the director of the newly established UTS Health Research Institute, Insight. You've been listening to Talking Health by the University of Technology, Sydney. And you can find us at uts.edu.au.